you would take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. I just had the privilege of returning from the Czech Republic and the country of Austria. And I have had a goal in 18 years of ministry to try and get on at least one short-term mission trip, if not two, every year. Because I have found that by going on short-term mission trips around the world, God very systematically takes me out of my comfort zone. Reminds me the great needs that there are around the world and how God is always willing to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things for the cause of the kingdom. And it's through those short-term mission trips that the Lord has probably enlarged my heart the most, given me a vision for what real ministry is, taught me what it means to walk by faith, not by sight, to, to even journal, to keep a record of the faith builders that He has provided, to remind me that we have a big God. And probably the turning point one of the major turning points in my life of a number of years ago was when I had taken 15 high school seniors onto a little island called Nevis in the West Indies. And these high school young people had all been on several previous mission trips, and every mission trip was a little tougher than the one before. They had been discipled. They had been matured. And by the grace of God, we got to cooperate with a a missionary radio station out of San Juan, Puerto Rico that had been broadcasting the gospel for 25 years into these little islands. And now we have the opportunity of going onto the island and doing follow-up work in cold turkey door-to-door evangelism. And so the first day that we went out, we gave as a free gift to all the islanders that we met that first day a little gospel of John that only went through the first three chapters and a Bible study, stapled together two pages, and asked the natives if they would take the time to read that little Gospel of John and to fill in that Bible study. And we would come back the next day and discuss with them that study. Well, when we went back the next day, every single person that we had given that study to had finished it. And the last questions on the back of it were, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If so, when? And many of those forms had written on them, have you received Jesus? No. If so, when? Today. And what we had found is that God had sown the seeds over many, many years into the hearts of these very poor people. They own very little. Most of their homes were eight foot square. No windows, no doors, no furnishings, but they all seemed to have a radio. And in that second day that we were there, over 200 adults and their children received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And we were sitting in a group that night praising the Lord for the things that He had done. That all we were was ambassadors who had the privilege of being involved in a harvest that God had been planting the seeds of for 25 years. 
And most of the young people had never led another person to Christ, let alone someone in a cross-cultural setting, let alone an adult. Well, that night as I went to bed, I felt myself feeling not very well. I woke up in the middle of the night with 104.1 fever. Began My body began purging itself from both ends. And for the next four days, I laid in a bed with 104 degree fever. Because when we got there, they had told us, whatever you do, boil the water before you drink it. So we had, because when you held up a glass of water before a light, it moved. There were squigglies in the water. There were parasites. Well, apparently we had missed one of them. And it did not miss me. But over the course of those four days, God took me out of my comfort zone. Because I began praying, Lord, what are you doing? I didn't travel 2,500 miles to lay in a bed. These young people, they need me. Besides that, I enjoyed the door-to-door evangelistic work. Father, what are you doing here? And for five days, God seemed very silent. And of course, when God gets silent, Satan's voice gets loud. And I ran the gamut. What have I done wrong? Have I done something to deserve this? Long story short, by the end of the week, five of the young men that I had discipled for three years came into my room to share with me how God had stretched their faith. How they had been so dependent upon me for three years that they had finally learned that their dependency needed to be on Jesus alone. And one of the lessons I learned is that the true test of leadership is what happens to the people you're leading when you're not there. And I learned that my God was more than capable of doing things without me. That I was not indispensable. That I was only a tool in God's hands. And I also learned that my God says to me, Rory, trust me. Not my methods. Trust me. Because over half of the young people that were involved that week in that ministry are now pastors, missionaries, pastor's wives, and missionaries' wives. But beloved, in all of our lives, there are times that God brings things into our lives to simply strip us out of our comfort zone. To remind us that God is more interested in my character than my comfort. And so this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 11 we come to one of the most beautiful examples of the Lord doing this in the life of John the Baptist. And beginning in chapter 11 and verse 2 of Matthew, it says, Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Jesus Christ, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Now, beloved, remember the context of this. John the Baptist is in prison because he's been doing the work of Almighty God. He's in prison because he's been obedient. 
He's in the center of God's will, and he's in a prison cell. And he's asking a question of all people to ask this question. This is the one that baptized the Christ. This is the one that saw the dove come down from heaven. This is the one that heard the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son. This is the one that said his greatest joy was to hear the voice of the bridegroom. This is the one that said he must increase, I must decrease. This is the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's asking questions. Are you the expected one? The term out of Psalm 118, are you the Messiah? And beloved, in all of our lives, because God's more interested in my character than my comfort, He will allow me to get into settings where I have to cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I'm struggling here. And as Colossians 1 puts it, I believe it's in verse 29, God wants us to minister with all His energy as we struggle to serve Him. And God allows us to ask questions when we are in difficult times. And by way of application, your college years are often years of transition. And one of the things you're going to find out is that days of transition are tough. They are stretching because God's just as interested in shaping your character while you're in school as He is with filling your head with information. More so, the Lord wants to enlarge your heart. And as we are in those days of transition, the Lord's going to be testing you to see if you will really walk by faith or if you insist on walking by sight. To see if we will really trust the Lord when the storms of doubt just keep building and building because our expectations might be unbiblical. And again, think of John for a moment. This is the one who said, hey, the axe is laid against the root of the tree. The tree of religion, the tree of Phariseeism. And Jesus is coming to cut that tree down. He's coming to bring judgment. But judgment hasn't come yet. And maybe John the Baptist is confused because he wanted that judgment to come. And sometimes in our lives, when people don't do things the way we want them done, we want God's judgment to come. But oh, if we do those things, we want His mercy. And maybe that's a part of John's struggle here. But notice what the Lord Jesus Christ does in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. In other words, the words and works of Jesus. Notice Jesus doesn't provide a rebuke. Because, beloved, as you study the book of Hebrews, it reminds us Jesus knows how we feel. Jesus had his struggles in Gethsemane. I don't want this cup, but not my will be done. Thy will be done. He had his struggles on Calvary's cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had his battles with Satan in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness experience after 40 days. 
Jesus knows how we feel. So Jesus simply tells them, go back and tell John, verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Beloved, what's he reminding John of? John, go back to your reference point. Anchor yourself to the faithfulness of God. Remember that no matter how many promises God has made, they're all yes in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Remember that when God speaks, He acts. When He promises, He fulfills. And beloved, when we are in difficult times and God is shaping our character, when He's taking us out of our comfort zone, do you have a reference point? Do you have things in your life maybe that you have journaled that when you do struggle and when the doubt storms come brewing on the horizon and building up, where is your reference point? What do you anchor yourself to as Hebrews 6 talks about? Do you have an anchor of hope that's immovable that allows you to be steadfast because you have memorized the Word of God? I like to do a lot of fishing on Lake Erie. Lake Erie is a vast body of water. And once you get out seven, eight, ten miles from shore, there are no landmarks. It's just wide open water. And after being out there one day with a friend of mine, it came about time to go home. He had to get to work. We had our limit of fish. And he said, okay, how do we get home? And I said, well, how do you think we get home? And he said, that way. I said, no that way. And he said, how do you know that? I said, because every time I come out on this lake, when I leave shore, I'm turning around and I'm looking to see where a reference point is. Because once we get out there and as we travel two miles, I turn around and as we fish all day long, six, seven, eight hours, I'm constantly looking, where's that reference point? Where's that reference point? Where's that tower on the shore? So I know the way home. So that I don't get deceived. And beloved, this is what God is saying to John. John, here's your reference point. Because he's quoting to him the passages in Isaiah 35 and 61 of what the Messiah would do when he would come. And we all need reference points for days of doubt. And then he makes the key statement in verse 6. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessed is the one who trusts me in spite of what seems to be. Blessed is the one who praises me in spite of what seems to be going on. In those days when God doesn't seem to be making sense. And as these were going away, John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out to see a prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. See, Jesus didn't say this in the earshot of the men going back to John. 
But the Lord is always going to defend the character of his own servants. As David cried out throughout the Psalms, as, as Saul attacked him and all the adversity that came into David's life, he said, Lord, you vindicate your own name. It's your name that's at stake here, not my name. I'm not going to fight for my rights. And the Lord is vindicating this true saint, this true servant. And then he makes the statement, this is the one about whom it is written in verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And truly, I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And beloved, if no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist previous to the cross of Christ, and John had questions and John had doubts, you and I are fools to think there won't be days when we're going to question God. When we're going to ask Him, why me, Lord? Why now, Lord? Yet, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven, He who has been to the cross of Christ, He who understands the true faith of the Christian, is greater than He. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. In other words, beloved, there's a war going on. And if I'm really a child of the King, I'm going to be a part of that war. The question is, have I learned how to fight the good fight? Do I know how to use my weapons? Do I know how to use the shield of faith? Do I put my armor on every day, even before I leave the house or my dorm? Do I recognize that if I want to be a light for God, a bright light is a visible target on Satan's turf of the kingdom of darkness? And Satan always has one goal, put that light out. And there's a war going on, as Genesis 3 talks about, the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. And beloved, we have to understand that in America today, those of you that are praying about going out of this institution, and you're praying about ministry, you're praying about missions, I hope you recognize you're going out to a battlefield. And that battlefield is real. A young man that I discipled a number of years ago named Bill called me a couple of years ago and said, Rory, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to resign. I really don't know what to do. And I said, well, Bill, tell me what you're talking about. Well, the chairman of the board approached me last night. And after a confrontation with him, I think I'd, I'd be better off just resigning. Well, tell me why, Bill. Well, he blames me for his daughter being pregnant. What do you mean he blames you for his daughter being pregnant? Well, here's the way he put it. Bill, when you came in here, you brought in all this discipleship stuff. All this short-term mission stuff. And my daughter wasn't interested in that. And she quit coming to the youth group. Started running around with the wrong kids at school. Now she's pregnant. Bill, it's your fault. And then he said on top of that, you expect too much of our teenagers. You expect these kids to have daily devotions and to keep a journal and to memorize scripture. I'm chairman of the board of this church and I don't do those things. 
And beloved, that's happening all over America. And if you're interested in being a youth pastor, and you're interested in being a pastor or a pastor's wife or a missionary, and the battles are the same on the mission field. Coming back from the Czech Republic last week, the greatest battles that are being fought in the Czech Republic are between the missionaries. Not between the missionaries and the lost people in the Czech Republic. There's a war going on. And there's territory to be seized. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are you willing to join that fight? To join the good fight? For in verse 13, he says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he is Elijah. He himself is Elijah who was to come. He came indeed to set up the kingdom. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is critical. This is true. This is a turning point. But in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? The Jewish people as a whole, the religious community of Jerusalem. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, we had expectations of you and you didn't fulfill them. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. Well, they had to say something regarding his ministry if they wouldn't follow him. Same thing with Christ. They're either going to accept his truth or they're going to have to rationalize why they're not going to accept his truth. And in verse 19, so the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, truth and time go hand in hand. If you really want to know what my character is like, watch how I handle it when people mock me. When people oppose me. When people say my ministry isn't worth being a part of. Or when they say what I'm offering that is truth, they start calling it lies. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, God always acts like Himself and therefore it's obvious who God's children are. Because you have a spiritual genetic structure within you. Galatians 5, Matthew 5. But beloved, people are going to test our character. And God allows it. You know, in the book of Job, Job handled pretty well when Satan just came in and created havoc in his life. Hey, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But when did Job have real trouble? When his friends began to criticize him. When people that he thought would stay with him began to turn on him. And beloved, God uses that to take us out of our comfort zone, to enlarge our hearts, to stretch our faith. Let's go back and make some applications in closing. Let's go back to verse 2. When these doubt storms come in, when these conflicts come in and God's enlarging our heart, notice what happens in verse 2. John sent his disciples to Christ. And when the doubt storms come... The most important thing that we have to figure out is where am I turning? 
Do I go to the right source? Am I fixing my faith? And that's why throughout the book of Hebrews, when all the trials that that church was going through, the Lord said in Hebrews 3.1, Fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts on your heavenly calling. Because the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord, Proverbs 16.33. In other words, nothing comes into my life that doesn't come through God's hands first. Do I fix my faith to that? When problems come up in my life, do I look at the problem or the problem solver? Do I really fix my heart, my eyes, the eyes of my soul on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith? Because once he starts something, he will finish it. But do I have the habit of fixing my faith, of going to the right source? Because that's what John did. He sent his disciples to the right source. Or do we have a tendency to go talking about it to other people who can't solve the problem anyway? And then the next thing you know, we're gossiping. The next thing you know, we're slandering people. No, we have to go to the right source. Application number two, look at verse four. Jesus' response, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. Have I developed the discipline of learning to listen to the right voices? God indeed has a voice, but Satan also has a voice. And after all, it was John who said, my greatest joy is to hear the voice of the bridegroom. Yet even he here is not listening to that voice. That's why in Proverbs 13.20 it says, He who walks with the wise will grow wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Am I building relationships with people who are getting me closer to Jesus? Am I building relationships with people here on campus who are taking me to the cross every day that I learn to crucify this flesh and its passions, its lusts, its affections? Because that's where Jesus turned him, right back to the voice of Scripture. Because how does 2 Corinthians 10 put it? There's a war going on. And we either choose to fight that war with our flesh, with our mind, with our lips. Or do we fight the spiritual war? Striking down the vain imaginations, the strongholds that Satan is trying to set up. Have we learned to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ? How is my thought life? Someone in the body of Christ that will come and minister to me. Are you keeping a journal? I mean, you study the books of First and Second Peter. What is that? It's basically the journal of what Peter learned and all the mistakes he made when he walked the earth with Jesus Christ. And Jesus allowed him so often to insert his foot into his mouth. But Peter learned. And that's why the book of Second Peter so many times says, I want to remind you, remember this, I want to remind you. Because, beloved, the lessons we learn best are when we get hurt the most. I think Tozer put it, God cannot use a man mightily until he has hurt him deeply. So do I journal those days when God seems silent? 
many years ago when I was a relatively young Christian. I was in a Sunday school class. And for the first time ever, a prayer request became public in which a little four-year-old girl had a brain tumor. And they asked our Sunday school class to pray for this little girl. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and about seven weeks later, the request came up again. She was going into the hospital the next day. They were going to do another, I don't know if it was a CAT scan or what it was, to see if the tumor had enlarged, whether they should put a a shunt into it to drain it, exactly what they were going to do. And the following Sunday, they came back and reported to our Sunday school class the tumor was gone. Gone. To God be the glory, He had simply done something we could not explain. Well, five years later, I was now a pastor. One of my responsibilities was every Thursday in a church where there were 6,000 members, I made all the rounds in the hospitals, three different hospitals. And I went into Children's Hospital, and lo and behold, here's another little girl with a brain tumor. So I took it to our Sunday school class, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And three months later, she died. That was hard for me to handle. My first response, God... Don't you remember five, six years ago? And I journaled, Rory, trust me, not my methods. Just because I did it this way then doesn't mean I'm going to do it that way every time. And Rory, you've got a greater problem. Somehow inside of you, you think that little girl would have been better off staying on this earth than being in the arms of Jesus. And we journal those things because they're turning points. And if we learn the lessons God wants us to learn, He takes us to another level of understanding the heart of Jesus. Real ministry real trust. Oh, we can all say we trust Him until you're backed in a corner and there's nothing you can do but pray. It's the only thing you have left. Pray and let God be God. Application number four in verse six, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Have I developed the discipline to praise God in spite of what seems to be? Do I really trust the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and being? Do I, have I developed the discipline? I don't lean on my own understanding anymore because I found that every time I lean on that, I fall over. Face first into the dirt. Praising God in spite of what seems to be. Because, beloved, we don't like to admit this, but worry is sin. Worry says God is not sovereign. The finished work on the cross wasn't really finished. The cross isn't enough. The blood of Jesus isn't sufficient. Worry is sin. And it's very hard for us to develop the discipline of praising God in spite of what seems to be.
Application number five in verse 12 again. There's a war going on. And the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. And beloved, don't ever forget, if you are a growing Christian, your light is getting brighter. And that bright light becomes a very visible target in spiritual war. And Satan always goes after the most visible targets. He always goes after leadership. He always goes after pastors and their wives and their relationships and their families. He's always attacking the most visible lights. Well, if I want to be a growing Christian and I want to be a visible light, I better learn to understand what warfare is. Because, I mean, John wasn't afraid of warfare. John wasn't afraid to say, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you little instruments of the evil one. And beloved, Satan wanted his light out. And yet he was still in the center of God's will, being in that prison cell. Application number 6, verses 16 to 18. People are going to mock us. And sometimes those people will be right in the body of Christ. And the other discipline I need to develop is I better learn to thicken my skin without becoming callous. If you're going to be in ministry... If you're going to be a Christian in a nation that's growing more and more corrupt, laying aside absolutes, laying aside morals and values and ethics, you better grow a thick skin. That's why Proverbs 27.21 says, The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. And if I'm the type of person that I find myself rising as people praise me, I will find myself crashing as people criticize me. And that's why in John 5.44, the Lord said, if you expect praise from men, if you live to please people, you'll never receive praise from God. You'll never have a relationship with God that will carry you, that will give you a joy that no one can take away, a peace that passes all understanding. And finally, the last application in verse 19. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And if God's wisdom is coming into my life, and there are deeds coming out of my life, God is going to do something to take me out of my comfort zone. Again, in closing, when I was in the Czech Republic last week ministering to some missionaries, one of them stood up to share that having been a school teacher for four years, he had gone to Moody to take some courses during the summer. And just taking those courses, God began to lay upon his heart an interest in, in missions. And so he decided to resign his position as a school teacher and to head over to Swaziland. Went over there and began to teach came home after a year, shared with his mother and his father that he had a passion for missions, that God had opened so many doors that he could not explain. And his mother said to him, his mother, a professing Christian, said, you're a fool. You're a fool to give up 
all you have here in America. A good teaching position, the whole summer off, all these fringe benefits, you're an absolute fool. You shouldn't go. It's one thing to go for a year. I'll tolerate that. But a lifetime? And he said, Mom, I'm going. And she took a black scarf and hung it over his picture on the wall as if he were dead. And he spent 17 years in Swaziland and Cape Town, Johannesburg, ministering powerfully as God used a very ordinary man. And then he got a phone call that his mother had had a stroke and a heart attack. And he got on a plane to fly back to America, got back to Akron, Ohio, immediately called the hospital and the doctor said, no, I don't want you coming in to see your mother tonight. We told her you're here. We told her you'll be here first thing in the morning. So he slept that night, got up at 6 a.m., called the hospital and was informed that his mother had died in the middle of the night. Went to the hospital. A nurse immediately came up to him and she said, I, I just don't know how to share this with you. Because we told your mother that you were coming and she got angry. This nurse was a Christian. She said, your mother was a very bitter, bitter woman right to the end because you abandoned her and went to South Africa. And in the middle of the night, she took off her oxygen mask and laid it on the bed and took her own life rather than face you in the morning. And that missionary just shared, you know, that's when the questions begin to well up inside. Why, God? traveled 22 hours on an airplane to see my mother on her deathbed and this is the way it ends. But through all of that, the Lord just anchored His heart that much more to verse 6. Blessed is He who keeps from stumbling over me or what I allow to happen. And beloved, this man is one of the most powerful missionaries I know because he has anchor points. And when the storms come and God takes him out of that comfort zone, there's no question that he praises God in spite of what often seems to be. Let us pray. Father, thank You that Jesus is our rock of ages. Thank You for giving truth to the soul that gives us an anchor point to a hope that will not fade away. Thank You for a faith that is immovable, that abounds in the work of the Lord, that knows that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. And Father, as we go our separate ways this day, enlarge our hearts, stretch our faith, increase our vision, enable us to walk by faith, not by sight. 
that we might be blessed in calling You blessed, in praising You at all times in spite of what seems to be. May You always be glorified in the good days and the so-called bad days that may Jesus Christ alone be honored in our lives as we encourage one another, as we spur each other on to love and good deeds, knowing that the day is approaching soon where Jesus will be back here to take us home with Him. May You find us faithful. May we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of Your Master, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Maranatha.